Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Adolfo Garcia Sastre. Um, He's a a professor in the microbiology department. He's also the director of Global Health and Emerging Pathogens Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And, uh, you know, according to his background, he's uh, for 25 years, he's been researching and looking at molecular biology of influenza viruses and other negative strand RNA viruses. So, um, very accomplished person in the virology field, and I wanted to have him here because uh, this interview is going to be part of the uh, Understanding Viruses book that uh, I'm going to be putting out. So, Adolfo, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Okay, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Great, great. Okay. Well, we'll get started on the questions. Uh, let's, let's first start with your background. So, what got you interested in working on viruses in the first place so many years ago? Well, you know, when I was, um, uh, I, I, I did my college in um, in biology um, and then I became interested when I was doing college in biochemistry and somehow I, I got into the department of biochemistry in Spain and that's where I did my PhD thesis and you know it was biochemistry but I was dealing with a protein of a virus and, and I did my uh, PhD into um, the enzymatic activity of a protein of a particular virus that was a chicken virus and that's what interests me, you know, I, I read more about viruses and, and I got fascinated about um, how simple they are and uh, despite that, how they're able to um, uh, reproduce themselves by using the machinery of a cell. And that's how I decided to do my postdoc in, in virology yeah. and came to the United States. I was accepted as a postdoc in a very good lab in Mount Sinai. And then the rest is history, you know. I, yes, um, I think uh, part of it is chance and part of it is fascination at the right time, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, just briefly, what's your research about at this moment? Well, now we are doing a lot on COVID-19, yes, because that's um, pressing. But um, in, in general, the questions that I'm asking in my research are very similar are not necessarily related to COVID-19, which is how viruses are successful, how they are able to take over the host and um, cause disease, and at the same time, uh, transmit to a new host. And uh, is there anything that we can do in order to prevent some of the viruses that we don't have countermeasures for for them in terms of uh, potential therapeutics and potential vaccines? And also what we can learn from viruses that will give us tools to understand biology um, of ourselves, you know. So, so it's, a, it's a broad program, but, but it's mainly focused on virus biology. And uh, virus biology is not so different from uh, biology. It's just that it allows to simplify some things because they have so um, limited number of genes that they need 
to utilize resources at the limit, and this allows you to be able to uh, ask questions more easily than you are dealing with a more complex organism that has uh, many genes, like what the ones that we have. So it's a way to simplify things, to look for answers in uh, more complex organisms, and at the same time, understanding the virus biology and see whether we can do something about virus pathogens. Okay, well, yeah, let's get into the into the questions here then. So, um, to your knowledge, do do all forms of life have viruses? Are there any that, that don't seem to or we haven't found yet? Well, um, you know, I think um, they, this has always been an open question, right? Um, there were some forms of life that they were thought not, that we didn't know that they have viruses. And uh, later on, some of them, they were found to have viruses. So, so I think, you know, viruses, just the way they behave, they are probably part of life. It's part of biology. So even if there are some forms of life that we don't know yet that they have viruses, it's likely that sooner or later we will find them because um, they are such a fundamental part of biology that it's very difficult to think about systems that they have been able to come out, biological systems that they have been able to come out with a mechanism that prevent completely the possibility of having viruses. So even for some forms of life for which we don't know yet if they have viruses, I think that sooner or later we will find viruses for these forms of life. Yeah. And so now a question, you know, that, that I know is tough to answer. It's, it's probably even frowned upon, but are viruses alive, contingently alive? Are they fully alive? Are they not alive? What's your thought and why? Well, that, that's a big question, but it's more like a, a semantic question, I think, uh, for me. Um, so it's very difficult to define life. Um, so we think about life as um, an organism that is able to grow, reproduce, and get make copies of itself and um, get new copies again. Um, so reproduce, growth, um, making, making copies, uh, viruses are alive, but um, but life is a is a great definition. I don't think that there is a line that tells you this is not life and this is life. This is a continuous. So you can consider perhaps viruses when they are frozen, they are not reproducing, they are just chemical entities. You can consider them as not alive. By themselves, they will not be able to reproduce. They need to find resources, but that's actually the same thing with almost any form of life that we know, without resources, we are not able to survive. Um, so I, I think they are life organisms, but they are between the limit of life and not being alive. And I think the line, again, the line that separates being alive from not being alive is a gray line. It's not, everything is a continuous. But it's very difficult to say, okay, here, whatever is, uh, before this line is not alive, and whatever is after this line is alive. That, that, that's the problem that there is with definition sometimes when there is a continuous um, thing that makes it very difficult to put the limit where you consider things are alive or they are not alive. Yeah, it's true. I mean, even with our own, our own species, even when uh, you know, a woman is pregnant and the abortion laws, there's been a debate there and when is the, you know, is the, the fetus a living... I'm not going to ask you your philosophy on that, but uh, I'm just pointing it out that there is debate even there. You know, is conception the first moment of life? 
uh, is it when it's a month old, three months old, et cetera. So I see what you're saying. It's a great line. And even for our own selves, you know, if someone's in a coma, are they alive? What's death? Yeah. What's life? So it's, or, it is or, hard or, to, or the human, or the human, right? If, let's say that someone gets frozen for 200 years and then gets somehow thawed back and then he's alive back. And he was dead during the 200 years and was frozen or he was alive but barely alive. You know, it's very difficult to say, right? So um, I think I think the the definition space become murky because it's always a continuous and then it's very difficult. And even if you think about potential, so you think about something um, needs to have potential in order to be alive. You think you think about potential that varies are alive, but you know, even my single cell in my body has the potential to become myself also if it's been cloned, right? And then that means that the single cell in my body is a human being. Well, you know, uh, but, you know, as the potential is there, but um, it's tough. It's, it's tough to make a definition with when the line is not there and there's a continuous between inanimated things and, and, and things that are alive. Okay. And then um, why do you think that some viruses, uh, you know, infect and kill? And other ones uh, infect and will stay with the host sometimes for his whole life. And then other ones will infect and actually become integrated into the host's uh, DNA or you know, genetic material. Well, to me, this does, it does something that has to do with diversity and evolution. So once you get into a, a particular line in evolution, it's very difficult to get back. Um, and it's not the... It's not only about viruses, it's also about um, um, everything that has to do with evolutions. Why some animals, they need to kill other animals in order to survive. And some other animals, they just need to uh, um, eat uh, plants in order to survive. And why you need to even eat plants, where plants that are uh, living organisms, they don't need to eat anything that is alive. They can survive just by having... Um, oxygen and um, and sun because they can make energy out of the sun right um, so so it's, it has to do with uh, biology diversity and um, how the different forms of uh, of life have have found different ways how to behave and once you get into a line of evolution then you are doomed into the line of evolution we we for example we as humans we cannot be plants. We cannot just go to the sun and then lay down and then uh, get energy through that, right? Uh, and why not? In theory, it should be possible, but it's not possible because the way we have evolved, and it's very difficult to go back to a time where you could make this split decision in evolution to go into getting energy just from the sun or getting energy from consuming other things. Right. Same thing with humans, though. The humans, I could be a nice, you know, community family guy, or I could be a killer, <laughs> you know, and be really antisocial and just attack all my fellow humans and, you know, and try to kill them. Um, do you think that viruses are headed in any direction? So if there's one that's virulent and is killing its host, do you think over time there's any pressure or agency that would turn a virus from, uh, you know, that would turn it less pathogenic, that would make it more commensal with its host? Yeah, so, so, so viruses, they don't necessarily, because of evolution, they don't 
in theory, want to kill the host, right? Because if if a virus kills very rapidly its host, then it will not be able to survive. Viruses need hosts to survive. If they don't have a host, they are not able to survive. This doesn't mean that there cannot be a mistake in evolution where uh, something goes wrong, and then there are viruses that kill the host, and that's bad for the host, that's bad for the virus. But, you know, it's like uh, something that goes wrong, and then either both of them die, host some viruses, or um, the virus disappears because obviously without the host, the virus will disappear. And um, if the host uh, remains, but the virus is not there, then the virus disappears, right? So, so evolution takes care at the end that you get into an equilibrium. Um, and um, the virus, the only thing that wants to do because of the evolution is make copies of itself and being allowed to propagate and make more copies of itself from that, for that is going to need the host. So again, something can go wrong during evolution, um, since uh, the virus can become more lethal. That, that is, uh, you know, it's not that he can think about. That's not good for me. It's uh, something that may have acquired this property, and that's not good for the host, that's not good for the virus. And at the end, whatever can happen, uh, if things go really wrong, is extinction, both of the host and of the virus. And probably this has happened in, in the past, you know, not with humans, obviously, because if we have been extinct by viruses, we will not be here. But it's probably that some organisms, they, they have been, become extinct. And I think extinction is something that is very common with viruses, probably the type of viruses that were 1,000, 10,000 years ago were already some viruses that we don't even know about, that they have become extinct. Because evolution is very fast for viruses. It's more fast than for the uh, organisms due to their um, mutational rate that makes them very fast evolving. But very fast evolving means that you can become extinct also very quickly. So I don't think that, uh, I think that there is a lot of viruses, the same thing as other organisms have become extinct, dinosaurs have become extinct. Um, there are many organisms that have become extinct. I think for viruses, there are plenty of them that they have not survived. They become extinct. The only thing is that it's very difficult to find fossil records of viruses, except for very specific viruses, like the retroviruses, that you get the fossil record because they remain into your genome, into the genome of the host. And you know, most of our genes are made of retroviruses, which are like a fossil record of retroviruses, but uh, that's uh, because retroviruses are able to leave a fossil record, but RNA viruses like um, this coronavirus that we have now are running around, they are not able to um, leave a fossil record. If they become extinct, they're gone. And then it's yeah. difficult to find them again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I've heard uh, like 8 to 10% of uh, a person's DNA is from endogenized retroviruses from the past. Yeah. So well, these are the ones good. that are able to leave a fossil record, right? They, they are, they, uh, because they... They have um, established a particular evolutionary strategy that means getting integrated into the host DNA. Not all the viruses do that, uh, but if you get integrated into the host DNA, you are able to leave your presence there, right? Even if uh, you are becoming not functional, still the DNA is left there, and that's, that's like a fossil record. And that's why uh, we know gotcha. about retroviruses as fossils, but we don't know about RNA viruses. They, they don't leave the traces like that. Okay, so um, another question I had, and because you're you're looking at COVID, uh, this came to mind. Is there a word for so so? Let's say with a given virus, the first people that get it, 
supposedly from its, its origin. You know, I'll label them as like number one. And then they pass it to someone else and someone else and someone else. So what if I get infected with a virus that's passaged through 19 people? I'm number 19 or 20. How do you think that the, the virus would change? Is there a name for such a thing? You know, this, this passaging and the, the number which I've, I've, I've you know, come across this virus and gotten it. And what do you think will be the differences in the virus after its passage through a bunch of people? Well, that's like um, us also getting uh, kids and kids and kids and kids, right? So our kids are not exactly as, as ourselves. I think there is more diversity in our kids because the way we reproduce, which is by mixing the genomes of two people, while viruses, they don't mix genomes, they just reproduce themselves, but they have, it, they have some mutational rate that make them um, achieving diversity. And not all the mutations are able to survive, but some do, and, and if they are doing better, they will actually replace the previous um, viruses that they were around. But, but, you know, it's like thinking about generations. So um, viruses can change, but they don't necessarily need to change. So it depends on uh, whether the changes that they undergo, small changes, because they cannot change dramatically from one generation to another. And the same thing as your kid cannot be essentially completely different to you, because it has at least half of genetic material. So with viruses, the, the progeny has more than half of the genetic material of, of the parent. They may have a few mutations, but that's about it. So they cannot change dramatically from one generation to another. They can become indifferent, but you know, during nine, 10 passages, it's very difficult that the virus changes a lot, unless it's a virus that started in the beginning as a virus that was not very well adapted and needs a few mutations to become adapted. But that's very rare, right? Because most of the viruses that don't make it or, or they have already some possibility that they will make it and they need only a few changes to be able to make it. If not, it's very difficult to make it, you know? Well, with bacteria, they seem to pretty readily take um, <clears throat> certain genes from viruses and incorporate them to, you know, to gather immunity. Um, viruses, again, you know, we know they endogenize in some creatures. Um, I wonder if viruses not only use cellular machinery, but they also take some of the genetic material and incorporate it themselves. And in that way, maybe they do evolve. Uh, yes, that, that's, that's the case. We know about examples where this has happened. It's not um, very common because, you know, it's not a, especially for complex organisms that are already it then it's, it's very rare that they, they, something like that happen. But one thing that, that, that has become clear, for example, is that the, the placenta, you know, the ability to have, the, the, which is a main characteristic of mammals. Mammals, they, they give birth through uh, the establishing of a placenta. So for, for, getting a, for being able to get the placenta, we need a gene that was a gene that came from a retrovirus. And somehow this retrovirus became into our genome, and the, the gene that was doing was co-opted to an evolution to be able to start uh, the possibility to make placentas. So, so mammals are mammals, and we are what we are, just because there was a retrovirus that we took a gene out of, of the retrovirus that became integrated into our uh, genome that made possible to uh, 
make placenta. So, um, so that is, is, is not the thing that happen every time, but in time of evolution, these things happen. Uh, basically, viruses, you can think about them like ways how to, not only pathogens, but ways how to interchange genetic material. And every time that some, an organism exchanges genetic material with another one, probably things cause bananas and it's not good. But sometimes a new genetic material comes that is useful. And that happens also in bacteria a lot, a lot of times um, that uh, viruses are able to, uh, um, uh, to make, to transfer genetic material from a bacteria into another bacteria that without this virus would have, its transfer would have not been possible. Um, so again, they are, it's not something that happens uh, often, but during the time of evolution, these things are going to contribute to um, evolution at the end. And, and without viruses, we would be very different from what we are. Yeah, um, when a virus infects, there seems to be a latency period, sometimes, you know, hours, days, maybe even weeks before the organism, you know, shows signs of sickness. Why, why do you think there's this latency period? What's going on? And how is the decision made? Or why all of a sudden would, you know, an organism experience sickness when it didn't before at the initial stages of infection? Yeah, I, I think there are two things here. One thing is that um, in the beginning of an infection, if we are thinking about an infection beginning, there is a few viruses that invade your body. And a few viruses are going to invade a few cells. And if a few cells of an organism are affected, uh, it's, it's not a problem. You know, if they, the cells change completely their function, and they are not doing what they are supposed to do, and they make copies of, of this virus, that's okay. There are only a few cells. We have so many cells that, that some of the cells still take over the function. But as the virus starts to reproduce and there are more cells being affected, then you may have an impact on what was the function of the cells that they have before they start to make uh, virus factors. So, so that's, that's the reason why we don't become sick right away just by being infected. It takes a while till there is a lot of cells being infected when uh, we may have a disease because of uh, the way, uh, because only a few cells see that, it wouldn't matter for us. Do you think it's just the number of cells infected or do you think that, you know, what if there was like so a that's, quorum that's, yeah. sensing? So, that's one, so I say that that's one, right? So there are more than one thing on, on that. So. So this will be example for COVID-19, for flu viruses, viruses that are acute viruses, viruses that come in, they reproduce, they get a lot of copies of the cells, they leave because they go to a new, a new host. They're actually being, um, in general, being um, um, eliminated from the host where, where they came, but it doesn't matter because the virus was able to find a new host and then continues reproducing. Now, there are some of the viruses that they don't do that. There are some of the viruses that they just become, um, they insert into your genome, like retroviruses, um, or they become latent for a long time, and they are all the time with you, like herpes viruses. And in general, these viruses become latent. Um, they don't do too much harm. It's said that from time to time, they become reactivated to be able to make copies of the cells and to be able to infect another person. And this time is where you get um, disease because it's the time. So that's a completely different strategy. They are both valid. They, they will uh, give a rise to a organism that will be able to survive, but they're completely different uh, mechanisms of survival. And then finally, there is also the issue about um, 
Um, not everybody behaves the same because we are all uh, with different genetic material in different environments. So a lot of the disease that viruses uh, uh, induce in people is not that everybody that gets infected gets the same disease. There is a spectrum of diseases. So even for viruses that cause diseases, there's always a spectrum. And the spectrum is a combination between what the virus is able to do and what is your predisposition and what is your genetic factors and environmental factors that allow them to, uh, for you to become sick or just not even noticing that you are getting infected and you have a virus that produces in you and then uh, you transmit to a new host. So, and that has to do with diversity, you know, it's, um, it's like life, you know, there are so many different species, so many ways how to survive in this world. So mass diversity, the same thing with viruses. There are viruses that cause disease, there are viruses that don't cause disease, but the disease is never 100% uh, because it's a combination between what the virus is able to do and what are the predisposition, the particular host, because we are not all the same people that that will at the end result in disease or not. Another question I had is, um, again, I don't know if this is the case, but it seems that the tissues that a virus infects um, correspond to the mechanism by which it'll go from you know, host to host. So rabies, <clears throat> yep. um, you know, a dog may bite me and give me rabies, and then I may be inclined to, you know, to salivate like crazy and bite and try to spread the virus that way. But, you know, influenza, why, why would I get infected by respiratory droplets, let's say, and then uh, my tissues are affected so that I'll spread it the exact same way. Why, do they, why does there seem to be a correspondence between, again, the infection mechanism the cells infected and the mechanism of spread? Yeah, that, that has something to do, I think, with um, that uh, during evolution, you get um, addicted to a particular behavior. And what I mean about that is that um, um, there are many strategies how a virus can achieve transmission. But if if a virus um, has learned how to be transmissible by respiratory infections, then it's going to be selected to become more and more efficient in respiratory infections to the point that either it gets really good at doing that or it will become extinct. And that's the same thing with every mechanism of life, right? It's, like, it's, like, it's the same question. So the, same, the question about asking why a virus infects the brain, like rabies, makes you bite another horse and that's the way you transmit, why all the viruses like rotaviruses infect the intestine and then they get um, transmitted by a fecal route. So they infect uh, new people through uh, feces and aerosols in feces and especially kids. Uh, why some viruses they, um, they are doing by uh, respiratory droplets, why some viruses they do it by mosquitoes. I think it's the same question like um, why some animals uh, are um, surviving by eating plants, why some of the viruses, they, if they would be given plants, they will die, so they need to eat meat like the carnivores. So, so it's, you know, evolution creates this diversity of behaviors, and then it's very difficult to turn back evolution. It's very difficult that from a lion, in um, millions of years, they will come a, a cow. Um, the same thing, it's very difficult that from a cow during millions of years it become a lion. But the precursors of lion and cows was the same precursor. It's just that they went into different evolutionary lines and became addicted to a particular behavior that was selected for. And that's, you know, 
um, many people believe that um, things in life are, are very sophisticated, and that means that there is some intelligent, uh, uh, some intelligence around that was able to make this thing. But I think life is not very sophisticated. It's just becoming complex. But you know, you can't. There's things in life that cannot happen. You cannot come. You cannot from a lion uh, become a cow in just uh, 100 years. Would never happen. It's impossible. Biology does not allow for that. But with time, maybe a lion gives uh, change behavior, and then during millions and millions of, ev of evolution, maybe a lion gets also rise to an herbivore. But it requires a lot of changes uh, before this happens. And the changes are very gradual. So um, that's the same thing with viruses. There are a lot of behaviors that they have been acquired during evolution, a lot of diversity because there have been many, many years of evolution. But it's very difficult from, from a virus like uh, um, COVID-19, for example, to become suddenly a rabies virus that now gives you a, a disorder in the brain and is able to transmit through bites. Why? Because... Uh, you know, it's not so easy. You just you just have a few genes that you have, and that's what you have. And in order to change these genes to new genes that allows you completely different behavior, it doesn't happen uh, so easily because you need to go through very small number of mutations, which is what it allows evolution. Uh, and that small number of mutations is never going to result in a completely drastic change of behavior. Um, any examples that, that jump to mind of bacteria co-opting a viral ability or a virus co-opting a, you know, uh, eukaryotic cell ability or a eukaryotic cell co-opting a viral ability, you know, the transmission of genetic information and ability and knowledge, you know, from and to viruses. You know, for example, I've, yeah, I've heard that uh, bacteria can harness and express viral spike proteins in their membranes to attack and, you know, open up other bacteria. Any, any examples you've seen that are interesting? Yeah, no, there are many examples like that, but again, they are—they don't come uh, from uh, uh, just suddenly, right? So they have been acquired during years of evolution. Bacteria are able to transmit genetic information through phages. Phages from time to time, phages, they normally integrate into bacteria. They integrate the, the genome, and when they become again active, many times they take a piece not only of their own genome, but a piece of the genome of the bacteria that is close by. And when this results in a selective advantage for the virus, because it uh, goes to a new host and the new host likes the virus, so because it has now come in with a new factor that is, uh, that, that is good also for the host, then, it's, then this is going to happen, right? So, uh, so that's one example. There are viruses that have taken genes from another viruses um, because they, from time to time, they have... Um, Again, if there is a co-infection, you get the potential of change, exchange of genetic information, and some genetic information becoming now part of a new virus that is being taken from another virus. Most of the instances, this happens. This is a disaster. It's not good for the virus to come with the burden to have another viral gene because it's not good. But sometimes, um, very rarely. This results in a selective advantage, and when this happens, then this virus is selected and then becomes more prevalent than the previous viruses. So, so this happens all the time during evolution, but it's not something that happened in a few years. That needs uh, um, thousands and thousands of years to come out with the right um, um, event that makes this exchange of genetic information 
an acquisition of genetic information in advantage for the organism. Either it's a virus that get it from a bacteria or it's a bacteria that get it from a virus. Yeah, I just didn't know if there's any examples of this that like really stick out to you that are just amazing to you or interesting that you want to comment well, on. Well, for, for example, you know, I, I can tell you about one that is, uh, that is well known. Um, before COVID-19, uh, there are human coronaviruses, right? And some of the human coronaviruses, they have a gene that is a hemagglutinin esterase um, that allows them to enter more efficiently into cells. And this hemagglutinin esterase is a gene that was probably acquired from influenza C virus. So coronaviruses somehow were able to uh, pick up a gene from an influenza C virus. It's, it's influenza C is not like influenza A or influenza B. Usually does not cause disease in humans, but it's a virus that is there. And they took this gene from an influenza C virus into their own advantage. And now they have this virus, this gene, and this allows them to be better fit for uh, propagating among humans. They don't cause too much disease. They are, they are causing only the common cold, but it, it was a gene of a virus that is corona, very different from influenza, that was a coronavirus picking up this gene from an influenza virus and then using it for his own advantage. Are there any um, entry methods of either phages or viruses that you find particularly amazing or complicated or sophisticated? Well, that, that's, that's where it becomes definition of sophistication, right? So um, most of the people think that, and even scientists, they think that viruses are very smart because they have come with very smart mechanisms to, um, to enter cells, to replicate, etc. Um, maybe I'm one of the few scientists that uh, believe the opposite. I think viruses are extremely dumb. They, 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 just been, they are just what they are because that's what they have been evolved to. And even what you think that the virus the entry mechanism and replication mechanism is very efficient and very sophisticated, I think is, um, again, is, is using weaknesses that happen and yes, the virus is able to do it. So they, they look like extremely efficient machines, but actually they are um, very error prone. Most of the viruses, even for COVID-19, most of the viruses that are produced, they are non-infectious. So it's just through sheer numbers that viruses achieve success. Uh, if they're able to make millions and millions of copies, then uh, some of them will be successful, uh, but many of them, they have a few mutations that make men, made it unsuccessful, but you know, they waste a lot of energy, but still they're able to do it, right? So, so the, the mechanism is they look very sophisticated, but I think it's, it's the end of evolution, is due to evolution. And what it looks very sophisticated when you look at it, um, it's not so sophisticated when you think about it. If you want to think from scratch, how to make the most efficient organism is able to propagate from cell to cell, probably you will choose different mechanisms than the ones that viruses have been able to come up with. Um, if we will know uh, enough, right? So, so again, I don't think that viruses are smart. I think viruses are very dumb, but they are very efficient, you know? You don't need to be very smart to be efficient. Are there any uh, examples of, you know, is, is it always one virus, one infection, one cell, or are there examples where viruses, it takes multiple viruses in order to infect the cell and they're acting in some kind of coordinated manner. Has that ever been observed by you or anyone? 
Yeah, yeah, like like all all biology, there is uh, a lot of different behaviors, right? I, I can put you an example: hepatitis delta. Hepatitis delta virus is a virus that causes hepatitis, but it's a virus that is unable to propagate by itself. It needs another virus to be able to propagate. It needs hepatitis B virus. Um, so people that get infection, co-infection with hepatitis B and hepatitis delta. They usually have a, a hepatitis, a disease that is worse, but hepatitis delta will not be able to propagate without hepatitis B because it's a, it's a parasitic uh, organism for hepatitis, uh, hepatitis B. It requires the machinery of hepatitis B viruses to be able to replicate. Without hepatitis B virus infection, you don't get hepatitis delta viruses. So, you know, like everything in life, there is uh, so much diversity that you can always find examples about uh, organisms that require other organisms to be able to survive. Do you think that, um, you know how in bacteria, uh, they'll form biofilms, and obviously they'll preferentially mm-hmm. form a biofilm with their same species or strain, you know, maybe with other strains too. Do you think viruses have uh, species or strains or quasi-species, and do they have a group identity? Do they know you know, self versus other, even in the context of a cell? Well, you know, self versus other, so certainly they don't have conscience, right? Um, but the ability to distinguish self versus other has to do with the way they replicate. If they replicate themselves, uh, that's what they think they are selves, right? You try to replicate yourself. Sometimes, like I put the example of hepatitis delta, a virus comes with a replication machinery, but is somehow tricked by another virus that is has to have replication machinery to also replicate this other virus. So you can have also always this type of potential uh, tricks that uh, you may get into. Um, but viruses, by definition, um, because of the machinery that they use to replicate, especially RNA viruses, um, they have genetic material that is RNA that um, is not as stable as DNA. It does not have ways how to um, um, preserve the ability of, of, of the DNA to become stable. So they have a high error prone. Um, and because they make so many copies of themselves, then um, all the copies are not exactly the same because they are mutations, and that's what is called quasi-species. Now, this helps the virus in, in a way that... Um, if any of these mutations allows them to somehow overcome a particular barrier, then it will be selected more quickly. So evolution in general is more faster in viruses than in other organisms just because the mutational rate is higher. On the other hand, uh, mutations make them also, um, they, they become with a burden because uh, most of the mutations are deleterious. But again, you know, it's, it's, it's the biology, and it's the biology that the virus has to do, and it's the biology that is being uh, used in evolution to make viruses to be able to evolve, and um, uh, they evolve more rapidly. But again, they have constraints also. You can, from a virus, you cannot make a, a plant, or you cannot make a mammal. Um, you can make another virus that is more efficient. Right. Uh, that's about it. Yeah, I've heard of a term, uh, drift versus shift, when it comes to viruses. And so I, I want, I'd like you to answer what that means. But um, if there are multiple viruses in the local environment around a cell and many different kinds of viruses could infect it, do you think there's a competition or is it just luck? Like, oh, this one just got to the cell first. So 
good for us to shift and then uh you know is there competition to uh, affect the cell well there are both things right some some particular quasi species will be able to help one you know one another just some so they compete for the same uh, thing and that's that's part of life also many viruses for example make the cell when they infect it less able to be infected by the same virus because they will uh, kill the receptor, for example, uh, of the cell. But this doesn't mean that the, um, sometimes there is co-infections and the co-infections are useful for both viruses. So, so, so again, like in any type of flight, you get viruses that establish symbiotic relationships, you get viruses that establish competitive relationships, and you get viruses that become um, not competitive, not symbiotic. Um, it's the same thing as with with other types of life. In these terms, viruses are not different from uh, from organisms. With a fungi, can be symbiotic or it can be parasitic. Okay, Adolfo, <laughs> what's the best way for uh, for people to follow up on your particular research and to learn more about what you're doing? Well, I guess the easiest is to look to my papers, right? Um, but there have a lot of papers, so you can look to my web page. There is a there is a summary of what we do in the lab. Um, and us, but basically, we are people that are interested in uh, um, understanding virus biology uh, with the idea of um, how uh, to understand disease caused by viruses, but also to be able to use viruses as tools to, uh, for therapeutic approaches or for understanding biology. So, you know, we use, we try to develop viruses as, as agents that will kill cancer. We try to develop viruses as a vaccine. Um, agents that will be used as vaccines against other virus diseases and thus taking advantage of what viruses can do to come out with ways how to uh, um, make them useful um, uh, by eliminating the pathogenic mechanisms and taking some properties that are useful for us, right? Uh, but mainly it's about understanding how viruses interact with the host and how they're able to do what they do and what we can learn about biology from this interaction. That's great, Adolfo. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. All right. Very good. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.